Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so happy today to have as my guest, Professor Richard Albert. He is the William Stamps Farish Professor-in-Law, Professor of Government, Director of Constitutional Studies at the University of, of Texas Law School. Um, he is also the co-president of the International Society for Public Law. He has been involved in over 100, I think, maybe more international conferences. He has a BA and JD from Yale, various graduate degrees from places like Harvard and Oxford. He is quite simply one of the most thoughtful people in the world today on the issue of comparative constitutional law and constitutional amendments, both of which we're going to talk about today. Uh, Richard, so glad to have I'm so, so glad to have you. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. I'm, I was grateful to hear from you. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you, and I look forward to our conversation. I, I call it a show. You know, I'm, that's probably a pretentious way of saying podcast, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll take it. Um, so let's begin with this. Uh, I, by the way, I should say you're, you, you were born and raised, I think, in Canada. Um, and I, I'm, I was born but not raised in Canada. Um, but you are a Canadian, and that, that's maybe important as we you know, go down the road of this discussion. Um, so first, what created your interest in comparative constitutional law generally and constitutional amendments specifically? Oh, and I should mention your book, Constitutional Amendments, Making, Breaking, and Changing Constitutions. It is an awesome book, and it's one of the rare constitutional law books that tackles a subject that is very under-theorized. There are very few under-theorized things anymore in con law. This is one of them. Go ahead. Well, thanks for mentioning the book. It was really a labor of love. It took me four or five years to, to write it. And when it finally came out, I was able to exhale, uh, <laughs> as it were. But you asked a question about my interest in comparative law and constitutional amendments uh, specifically. And I think I've pinpointed the moment when I became interested in the constitutions of the world. And it was in 1995. I was a senior in high school, and I was at home watching TV with my mom. It was an important night. It was October 30th, 1995. It was the night of the Quebec referendum. Mm. Quebec voted on whether to secede from Canada. And I was watching the returns with my mom. It was very close. The yes side was winning, then the no side. It really went back and forth. It was very, very close. But that night, as the returns were coming in, we were watching on TV, I got a call. It was about 9.15, 9.30 or so. I got a call from someone named Bob Estock, <laughs> Coach Estock. He was calling me from the Yale football team, asking me to come down to visit the campus, wow. to enroll eventually as a student athlete because I did play football uh, in high school. Hold on. And so, I'm sorry, Rich. Hold on. Pause a second. Since you are the first person in 85 podcasts or so to have actually played college football. Oh, that's not true. One other person did. But anyway, um, what was it? I'm sorry. We just have to pause for a moment. What position did you play for the Yale football team? I was a running back. Wow. I was how, a running back. I, yeah. I've, how tall are you? That was 50 pounds ago. I'm now a scrawny. I'm a scrawny 170. At the time, I was 220 pounds, and I also ran track. So I wasn't slow. It's hard to um, imagine you at 220. I've seen you in person. You don't look big, so it's hard, it's hard to imagine. All right. Sorry for the interruption, but that was fun. Okay. Yeah. You know, I asked myself that question. Where did that weight go? It just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to eat, you know, four meals a day anymore. And, you know, Most of us have the opposite problem, time. but go ahead. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for that 
that trip down memory lane. <laughs> but that night, that night of the referendum, I got a call from Coach Estock, and he's inviting me to campus because he's seen my game film. And he's asking me, well, what are you up to tonight? And I explained to him that I'm here with my mom and we're watching the returns of the Quebec referendum. And he starts asking me about the history of Quebec in Canada and the tensions historically between these two jurisdictions. Quebec, of course, being part of the Canadian jurisdiction. And then he tells me, you know, Richard, we in the U.S. have had our own travails with secession. And he starts telling me about the Civil War era. Mm -hmm. And he tells me about the southern states that seceded or purported to secede from the Union. And then we start talking about it. But I remember that conversation so well because it was a union of two things that I really enjoyed, one of which I didn't know I enjoyed until that time, <laughs> that call. And that was constitutions uh, and the way they change, the way they evolve, the kind of pressures that politics brings to bear on them. And so that call was really kind of a lecture that I got from him about U.S. constitutional history, specifically the Civil War. And I can pinpoint that as the moment when I said, this is interesting to me. I didn't know what I'd do with that interest, but right. I certainly went on to college to learn about American political history for sure. Well, and, and that, that's, a, that's an amazing story given the events. You know, I'm doing this from Atlanta, Georgia. And yesterday, one of the members of Congress from my state basically said we should just divide the country into red and blue states and move on. And I was thinking of you when she, when, when she said that. Let's return. I mean, she's a crazy person, so we don't want to spend too much time on her. But maybe we'll come back to that at, at, at the end. So um, let's, let's just stick with you personally for a minute. So um, you end up going to Yale Law School and getting a bunch of graduate degrees. And I'm assuming that at some point in that journey, you found yourself, yes, this is what I want to do. I was right that night in October, you know, uh, in high school. That's precisely right. I eventually found my way to thinking, I'd like to be a law professor. And I came to it really inspired by the teachers that I had in my first year and my second year. My first year, I had Owen Fiss. He taught me civil procedure. Legend. And I remember thinking, oh, he's, yeah. um, what, what a gem. Yeah. Uh, a brilliant man, a giant man, but a gentle soul. Yeah. And I remember in that course thinking, he is doing what I'd like to be doing. And the way he's approaching the teaching, it was just, it was really affirming mm -hmm. uh, of the students, kind of drawing us out and inviting us to offer our views and to defend our views. I mean, he didn't, he didn't go easy on you. Yeah. But I remember about midpoint in that first semester taking civil procedure with, with Professor Fiss. I still call him Professor Fiss <laughs> all these years later, even when I see him. I went to his office and I said, you know, I'd like to volunteer my time to be a research assistant for you. May, may I do that? Wow. And he advised me, he said, Richard, just focus on your classes. Um, do your best in our course, your other courses, and then let's talk at the end of the semester. That was a very generous thing of him to say, right? He could have, he could have taken my free labor, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and, and gotten a lot of work out of me because I was very motivated to learn, but also to impress him. At the end of the term, I go back to him and he says, Richard, how would you like to be my teaching assistant next wow. year when I teach civil procedure? Wow. 
You know, that kind of a comment from anyone, but let alone, I mean, from someone like Owen Fiss, but coming from anyone would have been sufficient to kind of give me the confidence to say, you know, I'm actually here and I belong here right. and I can do this. And so the kind of encouragement that I got from him, the validation set me off on this journey to eventually becoming a law professor. I knew that I didn't want to do it right away. I wanted to do other things. I wanted to clerk. I wanted to dip my toe in the practice of law. But I said, eventually, I want to come back and, and do this. But just like there's an origin story for my interest in comparative law, it's that night in October 1995, there's an origin story for my thinking, I want to be a teacher, and it's because of Owen Fiss. That's a, that's a great story. I, I, um, I mention to people all the time, I'm a professor today because of uh, my con law professor, first year of Vanderbilt Law School, who I just was so inspiring in every way. Um, very difficult, but inspiring. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to do, I don't know if I ever be able to, but I want to do what he's doing. Um, that, that's a great origin story. Um, Who was right. your con law professor? Well, there were two at the time. Um, one is still teaching them. His name is James Blumstein, and I had him first semester. He did not, I liked Jim. Um, he's a good teacher. But it was the second semester, Tom McCoy, who was mm. retired. Tom was an old school thinker who um, the critical legal studies folks drove to distraction. Um, I mean, drove him to distraction. And, um, but he was just, he believed in rigorous, analytical, critical thinking. And mm. like me, he's short, quite short, um, actually shorter than me, <laughs> and there aren't many pe teachers shorter than I am. And, but his presence in the room, you walked in and you knew you were in the presence of somebody who was a master of teaching. Um, actually, a little bit of an aside, I don't know how you feel about this. I mean, your law school has an unconscionably amazing faculty. Um, I don't mind saying that. Uh, and, and, and full of incredible teachers, my friend Steve Vladek, tons, tons of other people, Tara Grove, all kinds of people. I think law schools have lost that, though, the, the, generally speaking, the great teacher who truly inspires. Um, and then that's a shame in my mind. I think being a Supreme Court clerk is more important than great teaching these days. That's Siegel on... Law school, sorry, we can. I, I, do, 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 <laughs> well, you know, you invited me to think about yeah. Owen Fiss, and I, I'm so grateful to you for kind of recalling this yeah. cherished memory um, yeah. that I that I have of him. Of course, he's still around, and I've I've seen him from time to time since graduating. Uh, certainly, when I went back uh, in 2015, 2016, to be a, a visiting professor, yeah. but there were other professors at the time who just took an interest. Um, in me, and I assume they took an interest in others because this is a part of what Yale Law School does. Yep. They want to encourage students to think about these questions, to think about becoming a professor. And there's an infrastructure there that's built to help you do that. So for example, I did about six or seven independent directed reading courses, one-on-one -on -one with a professor, wow. culminating with a paper. So, you know, Jack Balkin, Drew Days, Akilah Marr, these are people who made themselves available to students who expressed an interest in their work and their ideas, or maybe not even their work and their ideas, but the general subject matter of constitutional law, and helped you to see what they had seen and what they knew. And so it was Owen Fiss, but there was a, a constellation of other leading lights who were just so generous with their time and their encouragement that really helped to sustain me and to encourage me, not just as a student at the time, but since then into mid-career to this very day. Right. 
Right. Well, as a footnote to that, two weeks ago, I spent the entire weekend sitting next to Jack Balkan. Um, and in fact, Jack Balkan was the first guest ever on this podcast. Oh. Um, and, oh. and of course, Jack being gener generous enough to do that meant other people who saw Jack did it would come and do it as well. And I'm really appreciative to him. And then finally, I finally got him to admit to me why he called his book Living Originalism. I don't think he's ever admitted that before, but that's a subject for a different day. Um, let's get back to your <laughs> let's get back to your expertise. So I I really want to hear about constitutional amendments because it's not something other than how hard our constitution is to amend, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, I have I've thought a lot about. So I guess my first question, and maybe it's an ignorant one, is do we have a working definition of a constitutional amendment? That, that can that can work across countries I would think that would be difficult it is difficult and it's difficult for a number of reasons because some countries define constitutional changes in different ways according to the scope and degree of change that's brought to the Constitution and then there's a further complication Eric yeah. which is that some constitutions are quote unquote unwritten I don't like that term I think every constitution is somehow written in some way. They just happen to be disaggregated in the text. How is the British constitution, the constitution written? It's written in statutes uh, in, uh, that are disaggregated, not codified in a single unitary text like the U.S. Constitution. So think, for example, of the Magna Carta. That is a text that forms part of the Constitution of the U.K. or the Human Rights Act, 1998. Mm -hmm several laws that have constitutional status form part of what I prefer to call the multi-textual constitution of the United Kingdom, which does not at all mean that it doesn't have unwritten components. But you see, the unwrittenness of the UK constitution does not distinguish it from the US constitution, which itself has unwritten components. Oh. So I don't like the distinction that is typically thrown around from the very first day of con law between a written constitution and an unwritten constitution. I'm with you on that. And I say it all the time as a response to originalists like Randy Barnett, a friend of mine, you know, who relies on the fact that the constitution is written for a lot of conclusions. And then I point to your, your, your former teacher, Akhil Lamar, who wrote um, the unwritten constitution, the book, uh, Lawrence Tribe, um, the invisible constitution. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we can find all those kinds of phrases throughout American history. Obviously, a huge part of American constitutional law is unwritten. That's a fair statement, right? That's right. That's right. And so I prefer to think of constitutions uh, as either unitextual, mm -hmm. one document, U.S. Constitution being the paradigmatic example, and multi-textual constitutions that come in many different documents with equal supremacy across the jurisdiction right there's also an asynchronicity to multi-textual constitution so whereas a unitextual constitution comes into being at one time right the founding moment multi-textual constitutions come into being in their multiplicity across different years different eras so this is a new paper that i've actually just uh, accepted an offer to publish with the virginia law review that seeks for the first time to identify this category of constitutions, to theorize them, and to explain just how they differ in their operation. And many constitutions that you might not think are multi-textual or actually multi-textual, Canada's constitution, Brazil's constitution, Finland's constitution, 
Many constitutions in the world are multi-textual. Israel, another example, which is in the news. Yes, today. we may get, I, I hope we have time to get to Israel, we may not. You, you said something, excuse me, audience, I have a cold, so if I sound terrible, I'm sorry. Um, Richard, you said something that, that, that triggered me though, so I have to ask you about it. Um, and this is, some, this is somewhat of a uh, um, copying of something Jamal Green once wrote in a great Law Review article. You know, our constitution has some provisions, the president has to be 35, that I think is final the day it's written um, to senators from every state. Until that is legally changed through some kind of amendment process, I, I do think that is a moment in time. What is your view on phrases like due process, equal protection, freedom of speech, free exercise of religion? That to me strikes, those phrases strike to me as impossible to be frozen in time. And if I'm right about that, I think that says something very critical of the originalist project. And I'm curious your reaction to that. I think you're absolutely right to put your finger on that distinction. It's a crucial distinction, especially in relation to the subject matter that we're talking about today, which is amendment. Mm -hmm. Because these open textured words and phrases, this is what allows the constitution to evolve today. Without those open textured words, it would truly be a frozen constitution because you can't amend the constitution today using article five. It's just, it's not virtually impossible. It is impossible today. That doesn't mean it'll be impossible tomorrow or next week or next year, but today it is impossible to use article five. And yet the constitution continues to evolve. It continues to change just not by formal amendment. It changes by judicial interpretation. See, for example, the most recent informal amendment to the U.S. Constitution, Dobbs. Right. That's nothing if not an amendment level change to the U.S. Constitution done not by Article 5 means, but by a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. I think Bruin is actually, I'm writing a piece now arguing that Bruin is the most anti-originalist revolutionary decision in American history because it calls for the end of balancing, which we've been doing since the beginning of time. That's clearly a constitutional amendment of the Second Amendment done informally. You know, you said something interesting. Um, so a lot of the people who have sat across from me on this podcast would take great humbrage at your statement that the, that the Constitution has changed or that the meaning has changed. And, and the most careful of those, people like um, Randy and Chris Green and others, would say the meaning, the Constitution hasn't changed. The meaning hasn't changed. The application of the text has changed. And then I say, I quote Justice Scalia and say, there's not a hill, a dime's worth of difference. That's from a terrible case, but there's not a dime's worth of difference between the meaning changing and the applications changing. That's what we really care about is applications. Um, do you have a dog in that fight? Well, I like to think of constitutions in terms of the effect that they have in society and in law. So we can think of the sociological impact of a constitution the legal impact of a constitution. I guess we can, I understand that view, but if you ask someone to compare the constitution's effect in society today versus 50 years ago, versus 100 years ago, versus right. 235 years ago when it was written for the first time, no one's gonna say it's the same thing. Right. And so I suppose my perspective is just a little bit different, right? <laughs> I'm, I care about how people perceive law, how people receive mm -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. That's fundamental because a constitution is all about that. A constitution is about its effect, its impact 
on people and on how they order and structure their relations. And so it's fine, I think, to live in a world of ideas and theory. And that's wonderful. You know, I, I, I swim in those waters. <laughs> I love the chilly water in those in that world. I do. I do. Um, but let's also be aware that the purpose of a constitution is not to be in cloud nine with these ideas. It's to structure and order society in a way that allows us to live in peace and to achieve prosperity and justice in our interactions. It's amazing how much of what you're saying, and I wasn't expecting this, so I'm a little off guard, I apologize, how much of what you're saying is relevant to all the debates I've been having for the last decade on originalism. Um, I was thinking of Will Bode and Steve Sachs, who, who have written a lot about originalism is our law and that kind of thing, and I've debated them. And, and one of my pieces about that is originalism on the ground. And what I show is on the ground, there is no argument that our country or our constitution is in any way similar to the one in 1789 on the ground. We need to explain that. And they don't have a good explanation. In my opinion, they don't have a good ex any explanation of that. Anyway, um, one of the things that I think your book suggests, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, is that the constitutional amendment process, whether we're talking United States, Israel, you know, wherever, let's, let's limit this to free countries, to countries where, you know, Western countries. Um, uh, at least free countries, is the most important part of constitutional decision-making. I think you've said that. Can, can you tell me more about that? I think the amendment process in a constitution is the most important part of any constitution. I, I really do. Because it gives you a window into the soul of the constitution. The procedures by which you change a constitution, they reveal that constitution's most fundamental commitments, most fundamental values. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Um, many countries around the world have constitutions that declare certain things to be unamendable. What that means is the constitution's designers have identified a certain value or rule or principle, and they've put that off the table. They've taken it just completely out of the game. You can change anything else about the Constitution, but not this thing or these things. So, for example, in Germany, the German basic law, which operates as a Constitution, says you can amend anything you want, but you cannot amend anything that's going to violate the human dignity of persons. Or in Turkey, you can amend whatever you want, but don't amend the Constitution in a way that undermines the secular character of the state. Or France, do whatever you want, but don't amend the Republican character of the state. Let me give you one more example. Brazil. Brazil's constitution says, amend the constitution. Yeah, great. But don't do anything that's going to infringe upon fundamental rights. What you see happening here, as I'm painting a portrait for you of some other constitutions in the world, is that the designers of those constitutions are telling you what they care most about, what the polity represents, the kind of non-negotiable values that you cannot ever undermine. Now, that tells you a lot about the Constitution. Yeah, yeah you've, also just depressed, you've, you've also just depressed the hell out of me because the only, well, you've depressed me because the only unamendable part of our Constitution might be the very worst provision in our Constitution, which is that the Senate must have two senators from every state and that's the only part, right, that can't be amended. And what does that say about us? 
I'm glad you raised that example because I have a different reading of that clause. Oh, okay. So I so the, the equal suffrage clause, for those uh, who, who are not aware, it's in Article 5. And it comes at the very end of Article 5. So the beginning and middle of Article 5 explains how you can amend the Constitution of the United States. It lays out four different procedures, as by my count. <laughs> and then it says you can use these procedures provided, I'm going to quote now, I think I'm going to quote accurately, provided that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Now, that provision is not unamendable in the same way that the German basic law says you can't amend anything to do with human dignity, or in the same way that the Czech Republic's constitution says you can't amend anything that undermines the democratic features of the state. It's unamendable, the equal suffrage clause is unamendable only because you need the consent of the state whose representation will be diminished. And so I want to distinguish, Eric, if I could, between the kind of unamendable rules we see in these countries I've outlined for you, Germany, Turkey, Brazil, the Czech Republic, versus the unamendability of the U.S. Constitution's equal suffrage clause. That, to me, is constructively unamendable. Have you written that up? Clauses. Have you written that up? I have. I have. Yeah, I have. That's in a couple of papers. It's also in uh, in uh, in chapter chapters four uh, and five of the book. It's constructively unamendable, not by design, right? By design, you can amend it. Right. You just need the consent of the state. Right. But in practice, it is unamendable. There's actually a debate, Eric, about which states need to consent. If, let's say, you want to take away a senator from, pick your state. Let's pick Georgia, for yes. example, since you're in the No, I, no but, I, but I like my senators right now. Don't take my senators right uh, now. Give me some, take them next yeah, well, time. No, I'm kidding. Pick, Go ahead. Go pick, ahead. Pick, your favorite, pick the state you want, you want us to pick on right now. Kentucky. Um, Kentucky. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. Let's say, let's say there's agreement to take away a senator from Kentucky. Yes. Okay? This would certainly trigger the equal suffrage clause, which says... You need the consent of the state whose representation will be different. Yeah, yeah. will be diminished. Yeah. The question is, do you need the consent of Kentucky alone, in addition to the three-quarters of the states who are supposed to ratify the amendment? Or, Eric, do you need the consent of all of the states in the union? Here's why. Kentucky will have one senator. Everyone else will have two. But the other states with two senators will have unequal representation in relation to Kentucky. Right. And so do you need those states as well to give their consent to the unequal representation they have in the That's all fascinating Senate? stuff. Now, it really, really yeah, is. so it's, it could be an, a unanimous requirement right. rather than just the requirement that Kentucky or Georgia or whatever state you want to pick on right. uh, has to give its consent. So it's actually very complicated, I think, but we'll never know and until it happens, and it's never going to happen. <laughs> oh, never say never, but you're probably right. Oh, um, yeah. Richard, yeah. Um, in constitutional, um, in academic circles in other countries, like, like Germany and Canada uh, and Brazil, and I do have an interesting story about Brazil law professors I'll give to you in a few minutes, but um, do they discuss, debate, and talk about the constitutional amendment process more? We don't talk about, you are a star in this, but as you know, I think, you know, you're kind of a lone wolf out there. There are a couple others, but you, you know, you, 
as opposed to, you know, you mentioned Dobbs earlier, you know, there, there were a thousand people writing about abortion. There are not a thousand people writing about the constitutional amendment process. Is that true in other countries as well, or do they focus more on it? I think other countries are much more attuned to the constitutional amendment politics in their jurisdiction than the U.S. is about its own. But I did want to come back and say one thing about unamendability. Yeah. Because you quite rightly identified the equal suffrage clause as being unamendable. I would just, you know, adjust that to say constructively unamendable. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> but, but, you know, there is something else that's unamendable in the U.S. Constitution in the same way that the German basic law says you can't violate human dignity is unamendable. It just has expired in its application. Right. So think of all, I'll tell you, think of all of the, all of the kind of noble, lofty ideals that other constitutions make unamendable. I've told you some of them. Human dignity in Germany. Namibia, all rights and freedoms, unamendable. Bosnia, Herzegovina, same thing. At the founding. I know. Article 5 made one thing unamendable in the same way. It just said that the unamendability will expire in 1808. Your viewers, your viewers and auditors, listeners might not know. You, I think, know. Yeah. The slave trade, the international slave trade was made unamendable. And so you asked me at the beginning of our conversation, Eric, why are amendment rules so important? My answer to you was that they're a window into the soul of the Constitution. They reveal something about the Constitution. Well, the fact that Article 5 made the international slave trade unamendable in the same way that Germany makes human dignity unamendable, that opens a window into the very soul of the U.S. Constitution. What an incredibly powerful point, Richard. I, I really appreciate you making that point. Uh, Kim Roosevelt was on my podcast just last month, and Kim's written a book saying that we should actually begin our country's history with the Reconstruction Amendment. Um, for a whole series of reasons, including the one you just mentioned, that 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 equality and 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 the notion that all human beings are really equal under the law has no place in 1791, despite the Declaration of Independence, but it does have a place in Lincoln and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And but but it, it, when I was talking to him, it it didn't hit me as hard as it's hitting me right now. That what he's really saying is those amendments are of such importance and change so dramatically our country that we can start afresh there, not with the heinous parts of the Constitution, one of which is the one you just mentioned. Very, I hadn't thought about it in that context. And, and this connects, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're quite right. And, uh, and I've, I've read the book, by the way, and we hosted him here yeah. for a book launch uh, last year or the year before. Yeah. Um, but this point connects just so well with the last question you asked about amendment talk in other countries in relation to amendment talk here. And the reason why amendment talk is so frequent and common in other countries is because they amend their constitution <laughs> and this country does not. Well, states do, but the country doesn't. Right. Our states. Right. Yeah. States do. And, and by the way, it's very interesting. Do you know which constitution out there in the world is the most amended in history? I do Any not. guesses? I do not. I'll give you a clue. It's not a country. It's a state. Massachusetts. Constitution. 
Alabama. Alabama. Okay. Well, Lord yeah. knows Alabama could still use some amending of their constitution. But leaving that aside. Well, you know, you know, I have to say, I have to say, the U.S. could stand to learn a lot from Alabama in relation to civil rights. You believe me? No. Let me tell you why. I do not believe you. I've spent much time in Alabama. I know you don't believe me. <laughs> I know you, no one believes me. But let me tell you, and I hope I'll bring you on board. By the way, Richard, I'm sorry. Just, 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 I got to tell you, whatever you say in the next one minute on this, it's going into the promotion of this podcast. Richard Albert says the U.S. can learn a lot from Alabama when it comes to civil rights. That's going in there. So go ahead. Make it good. Well, listen, listen, I, I think I can convince you. I'm hopeful I can convince you. Okay. Okay. What happened in November 2022, just a few short months ago? Alabamans approved a referendum to rewrite their constitution, to delete the Jim Crow era hateful language of exclusion, the slavery era hateful, painful language of exclusion. Imagine doing that for the U.S. Constitution, getting rid of the three-fifths clause getting rid of the Fugitive Slave Clause, getting rid of the Importation and Migration Clause that makes the international slave trade unamendable, making the U.S. Constitution gender neutral. Right now, if you read it, only a man can run for the presidency. Only a man can get elected to Congress. So Alabama did the very thing that the U.S. Constitution has not done, which is to modernize the text, to align it with modern values. I, I, um, I have a couple of responses. Um, first of all, thank you. That's interesting. Uh, I, I, having spent a lot of time in Alabama, I just have family there. Uh, 2022 is kind of late to be taking that language out, but late's better than never. I agree with that. The last thing I have to say, though, um, is my friend Erwin Chemerinsky, um, who has you know, a new book out on, on originalism, uses that example all the time, that under our Constitution, the word he refers to the president, and you know most originalists yell at him and scream at him saying, you don't understand. That was just the writing at the time. He referred to he and she at the time. I have no dog in that fight other than to say, if we have to defend it, maybe we should change it. <laughs> That's, that, that makes sense to me. And moreover, think about, think about if you're a young person reading the Constitution Agreed. for the first time. The first time you can actually understand what you're reading. And all you see is mentions of the male pronoun. Yep. You're thinking of your sister. Or if you're female identifying, you're thinking of yourself. Why am I limited in this way by my country? And then if you're, if you're interested, you'll keep reading and then you'll come across a three-fifths clause. You'll say, oh, what's this? You'll go learn about it and you'll say, oh my gosh, this is in my constitution. Now, Akhil Amar has a different view. Yes, yes, he does. He argues, and I think it's a compelling argument that he makes, which is that um, it's important to keep all of these vestiges of America's original sin in the U.S. Constitution because it shows just how far the country has come. It also shows how much further the country has to go. He calls it a democratizing trend line across history. If you look at the founding text and the amendments and the more recent amendments, he's right. It shows progress. And for him, it's kind of a running chronicle of American history. That's a powerful argument. Do you mind if I respond to it briefly? <laughs> um, of course, please. Um, I agree. It's a powerful argument. Anything Akil says is going to be powerful most of, most of the time. Um, so I've done a lot of work recently on institutional racism in 2023 America. In 2020, actually, technically 2022 America. And by my lights, 
institutional racism is really still as terrible, maybe worse um, in some ways than it was when it was not in the open in the 1950s and 60s. And I, I'm not sure how much progress we've made and maybe Akil's incremental approach. Um, I think I prefer your let's get this out of this document altogether approach. I think you, you have a better argument there because I don't think we've made, I think, I think you and I might agree. I, we haven't talked about it. I don't know. But we, we might think we've made less progress than Akil thinks we've made, and, and that might go to it. But anyway, we're getting off, off, off base there. But I just, I'm, I'm not sure. I think a shockwave to America's system might not be the worst thing at a time when a member <laughs> of Congress is calling for the dissolution of the country and Donald Trump may, in fact, run again. Uh, you know, we, we might need a shock wave to the system. But in any event, um, let's get back to the amendment process. Um, you have a phrase, I, I think I had this right, constitutional dismemberment. What is that? A constitutional dismemberment is um, a phenomenon that I've identified around the world and coined with this term yeah. in contrast to a constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a dismemberment to a constitution is really a contrast that it sets up with an amendment. What's that contrast? I define as an amendment as a change to the constitution that keeps the constitution coherent with itself, consistent with its pre-amendment self. Whereas a constitutional dismemberment exceeds the boundaries of the Constitution, changes something to do with the identity of the Constitution, the fundamental rights of the Constitution, the basic structure of the Constitution. And so I'm not comfortable talking about different kinds of constitutional change that have different degrees of impact on the Constitution and in society in the same language. They're not amendments. Some are amendments and some are bigger changes. That's why I call them dismemberments. And it's supposed to evoke this visceral reaction because the dismemberment actually does demolish some part of the infrastructure of the Constitution. Let me give you an example. In the US Constitution, an example of an amendment properly defined, right? This is a change to the Constitution that plays within the boundaries of the Constitution is the 20th Amendment. It changes the date of the president's inauguration from March 4th to January 20th. Why? Well, you wanted to have a shorter lame duck period. People didn't need to ride horses to the Capitol <laughs> anymore. You could take a car or something, yeah? And so you move the date up. That's an amendment to the Constitution. It plays within the boundaries. Another example, the 12th Amendment. That's an amendment properly defined. You change how electors vote for president. You go from casting two ballots for president and yielding the possibility of a tie, which happened in the election of 1800, as you know, yeah. to then with the 12th Amendment requiring electors to cast two differentiated ballots, one for president, one for vice president. That way we reduce the possibility of a tie. That is an amendment. Aren't all, I'm sorry, aren't all amendments that are ratified according to the procedures in the Constitution, no matter how much they undercut something previous, uh, constitutional amendments, not constitutional um, dismemberments? So in the United States, we call all of these changes, whether it's the first, 12th, 13th, 15th, whatever amendment, we call them all amendments. Yeah. Because they uh, 
abide by the procedural strictures codified in Article 5 for how to change the Constitution. I am now swimming, Eric, in the waters of theory. Okay. Right? Remember the waters that we were talking about yes. before? Yes. I'm now swimming in the waters of theory to say, well, it's fine to call them amendments, but you're missing an important point when you do that, which is that there are degrees of difference in the qualitative nature of these changes. You can't call them amendments, all of them, if they do different things. If one tears down an important infrastructural pillar of the Constitution, sure, you can think of it as an amendment, but you would be really blinding yourself to what's really happening. Here's why I suggest this distinction. In many countries of the world, there are multiple procedures to change the Constitution, multiple procedures to reform the Constitution. And each procedure is expressly designated to change this or that part of the Constitution. And the procedures vary in their difficulty huh. according to the importance of the change. Huh. So, for example, the Constitution of Austria, Switzerland, Spain, Ecuador, they have different kinds of procedures and they get harder and harder. But the harder they get, that is a reflection of the importance of the thing in the Constitution to which they're designated for use. I can give you a more specific example. Canada uses this kind of escalating structure of amendment and reform. If you want to change the something about parliamentary procedure, you use the easiest procedure of reform, which requires simple majorities in the federal parliament. The House and the Senate have to agree, period. If, however, you want to modify one of the fundamental constitutional commitments the Constitution makes, for example, the status of the country as a constitutional monarchy, or the equal status of French and English, or the composition of the Supreme Court. Well, then you have to use the most difficult procedure, which is the agreement of not just the federal parliament, but of the legislatures of each of the provinces. So this is the kind of distinction I'm trying to open our eyes to, which leads me to a conclusion that perhaps you'll agree with, perhaps not, which is that the 12th Amendment, the 20th Amendment, these are amendments properly defined, but the 13th, 14th, and 15th are not. These are dismemberments, conceptually, dismemberments to the U.S. Constitution. Why? Because they demolish the infrastructure of America's slavocratic constitution. Right. You can't speak of them in the same breath as you can of the 20th Amendment, which changes the date that the president actually becomes president. And so this is a theoretical point, Eric. It's not a point about what is the case today in the U.S. in terms of how we identify things. It's trying to open people's eyes to a different way of understanding the importance, the magnitude of the changes made to constitutions, not just in the U.S., but around the world. I, there are so many fascinating things about what you just said. I wish we had all day. Um, first of all, I think Professor Roosevelt would say, would agree 100% and would say that this membership of the old slavocratic constitution was so important that we should take those amendments and actually call them something else. I mean, I think he would agree with you that, that the, whatever that was, it's not your typical amendments. That's, that's one fascinating thing. Second, Richard, I've been doing this a long time. Um, I admit to having a lot of ignorance about other countries. I did not know 
that many other countries had this, um, some provisions can be amended this way, more important provisions. That is another example. I, I'm, I am not a fan of American exceptionalism. And, and that's another example of where I would bet you 90% of American law professors don't know that. And it makes so much sense. I mean, you know, to amend, let's just say the First Amendment to me, strikes me as something very different than amending what date the president, although your colleague and our mutual friend Sandy Levinson still thinks January 20th is way too close, is way too far away from November. And in fact, 20 years ago predicted what happened on January 6th. Kudos to Sandy for that. Um, but leaving that, that aside. And then finally, what you really triggered me to ask you is this. And this is, this is my wheelhouse. It strikes me that the Heller decision in 2008, that for the first time in American history, uh, a federal court found a, a personal right to own guns separate from militia service or the militia. Um, some lower courts have done that, but they've been reversed. But this is the first time the highest court said, from now on, there is a non, non-militia personal right to own guns. That unequivocally, in my mind, amended the Second Amendment. <laughs> in a, it deleted the text of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia. Um, and the Supreme Court, in my lights, our Supreme Court, does that all the time. It does it in, good, in cases I agree with. And women having equal rights is pretty much a constitutional amendment, unless you want to have a very interesting discussion about the text of the 14th. But as a matter of history and text, clearly they didn't think women were getting equal rights. Do other countries' Supreme Courts do that? You, first of all, I should ask, do you agree with that? And if you agree with that, how common is that in other countries? I agree with your assessment that the U.S. Supreme Court modifies the meaning of the Constitution in substantial ways uh, in its rulings. And we can talk about, you know, we know all the cases, Brown, right. uh, Dobbs, even Roe was a substantial change to the meaning and understanding of the Constitution. And here we can speak neutrally, right, just about the magnitude of the change. We're not making a vow. Right. I'm not making a vow. 100%. Either way. Right. And so this is just a, a matter of... Um, of, of actuality in the United States. It just happens. But there's a peculiar point here that has to be made, a point about the peculiarity of the U.S. Constitution. One of the reasons why the U.S. Supreme Court is so powerful, why it looms so large in American constitutional politics is precisely because it's so difficult, today impossible, to amend the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution has to change. It has to evolve over time. It just must, no matter what others say. It just <laughs> must because it does as a matter of reality. It just does. And if you can't do it by formal amendment, then it happens in these other ways. It happens by judicial interpretation. It happens by super statutes. Right. Uh, this, uh, I'm recalling an article in 2001 in the Duke Law Journal by... Uh, uh, John Farajan and Bill Eskridge, who theorize this idea. It happens by changes in political practice. It happens um, in a number well, of ways. Bruce Ackerman is famous for this, right? I mean, that's what he became Absolutely. famous for. Absolutely. Constitutional moments. Yeah. But the idea, and here I want to borrow and invoke the name of Heather Gherkin. She's helped me really understand the dynamics. She's of the dean of Yale Law School for those are. listening who don't know. Go ahead. Yeah. Professor and dean Heather Gherkin, a great scholar. Uh, who specializes in uh, in election law and federalism, uh, she's really helped me understand how this works with this very important, very useful, very vivid metaphor. 
which she calls the hydraulics theory of constitutional change. So in the United States, there are these energies for reforming the Constitution, historically and the present. There are these <coughs> energies. Well, what happens in a hydraulic system when you have all this smoke, all this energy building up, but it's blocked? It can't go through the ordinary expected path. What happens? Well, it either explodes or it finds other avenues to release the pressure that's built up in that valve. Well, that release of the pressure, that's judicial interpretation. That's super statutes. That's informal amendments that find a way to redirect the energies of reform outside of Article 5. Now, it's, that's been the case so far in the U.S., but as you know, when pressure builds up in a system that's self-contained, if the pressure gets too high, there's an alternative occurrence that can happen, right? Yes. And that's an explosion. Yes. Um, you called so me... you asked... I'm sorry? You, I was just going to say you asked about other countries, yeah. but you wanted to follow yeah, up. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask you about four other countries. Um, you, 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 you used the phrase judicial interpretation. There is an informal amendment on this podcast that I have to mention Dick Posner once a podcast because that's just how it is. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I was very close to Dick. And um, he used to say all the time to me and others, uh, it's really judicial creation. I, I would like to get away from mm -hmm. this interpretation myth. It is, and this is his, his idea, not, I'm, nothing original what I'm saying here, but he, he wrote a lot about how um, when times change and words are imprecise, judges have no choice but to create. And that's what Roe, Dobbs, Heller, Brown, they're all creations. They're all you know, more than interpretations. I think, again, nonpartisan, not picking on anything. You agree with Dick on that? You, do, do you agree with that? I, I, I don't have any objection to what you've said, because as a matter of reality, as a matter of practice, it's descriptively accurate yeah. to say yeah. that judges in the United States and around the world, they have blended, they have fused two roles that have traditionally been separated. Those two roles are the roles of a constitutional interpreter and the role of a constitution maker, right? In the United States, those roles, two roles, have in many cases been fused into one, exercised by the U.S. Supreme Court. And here, I'm not making a value judgment. This is a descriptively right. true claim about the changing of the U.S. Constitution. Richard, this morning, this is such a coincidence, this morning I wrote a blog post on Dorf on Law um, about an article written by Dick Fallon of Harvard Law School, who's one of our most thoughtful con law professors. And in that article, Dick says... And this, of course, is very appealing to me as a critic of the Supreme Court. He called it a constitution law-making institution. You know, and, 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 and by the way, Dick Fallon and Dick Posner had some battles over the years. And they didn't see eye to eye on some things. <laughs> on this, they agree. I mean, it's a constitution-making it's a, it's a constitution institution, not a constitution-interpreting institution. I was really proud of Dick for that. That sounds terrible. I didn't mean it that way. Dick was a traditionalist for a long time, and he's moving to my side of things, as he admitted to me. Um, and uh, But I think you're right, and he's right. The Supreme Court does yeah. make constitutional law more than it interprets constitutional law. All right, going back to the other stuff. And I don't think I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's um, it's a controversial claim to make at all. I don't typically make controversial claims, and so uh, <laughs> I'm comfortable making that claim. Yeah, if you had made it two weeks ago at the San Diego Originalism Conference, full of like thirty of the most influential originalists in the country, believe me, they, it would have been controversial, and they would have been angry. <laughs> <laughs> trust, trust, trust me on that. 
Um, oh, you wait, did ask about other courts. Yeah, one, the world. Wait, here's the question. Um, so that's how we do it, and I think yeah. descriptively, we're right about this. The Supreme Court and other institutions in our country have informally amended our constitution in major ways throughout our country's history. Anyone who doesn't think that, I think, isn't seeing clearly. Other countries, do they do it the same way? Do they? Do, is it is it more formal? Is it less formal? I'm really ignorant on these things. Other countries do things the same way, and there are some that just don't do it the same way. But there are many that you can put in the same category as the U.S. Supreme Court in terms of the power and influence that it exercises in that jurisdiction. But I want to say this. I want to say this. Standing here today in Austin, Texas, and generally in the United States, I think that most people would say that the U.S. Supreme Court is the world's most powerful court. They can't imagine other courts doing things that would cause us to declare that they're more powerful than the U.S. Because here people would say, well, Bush versus Gore, Shelby County. I'm in that dogs, camp, as right? you know. <laughs> for sure. No, for sure. And it's, it's, it's a fair view to have. But when I tell you the kind of things that we see other courts doing, I suspect that you'll be surprised. And you might say, well, the U.S. Supreme Court is powerful, yes, in this jurisdiction, but it, in my view, it might not even rank in the world's top 10 most powerful courts. I need examples. Give me some examples. Yeah. yeah, sure, I'll give you some examples. Um, constitutional courts in Spain and Turkey and elsewhere, they've banned political parties. Yeah. Constitutional courts uh, around the world, like in Italy, they've indicted heads of state for corruption. Courts in Canada and elsewhere have ruled and decided whether a province or a subnational entity has a right to secede. Courts around the world, France, Brazil, they have given constitutional status to a non-constitutional document. They've said, this document must be treated the same as the Constitution. Other countries around the world have invalidated procedurally perfect constitutional amendments. So imagine this. Imagine political actors in the Congress and in the states, they muster the required supermajorities in the United States, according to Article 5, to amend the U.S. Constitution. Can you imagine the U.S. Supreme Court then saying, you've, you've checked all the procedural boxes, but this amendment is substantively unconstitutional because of its content. Other countries have done that. Maybe one, one more example. Countries around the world have courts that have declared not just amendments to be unconstitutional, but entire constitutions to be unconstitutional, requiring political actors to go back to the drawing board to <laughs> right. write a new so, constitution. So I'd like to push back for a minute. Um, not that I'm going to get into a debate about this with you because you know much more about this than I do. However, um, I'm assuming almost everything you just mentioned, and I'm wrong, just say, Siegel, you're wrong, has happened since World War II. Well, almost everything. Since we're, all of that is, is post-World War II history, right? Okay. So my response to you, and I think and we talked about this a little bit before we started, is that th this is how I would describe our, our Supreme Court compared to other countries, and you tell me if I'm wrong. 
our Supreme Court is the only court in the in world history that has been called upon to um, interpret a 200-year-old or more document full of vague and imprecise phrases against the backdrop, and this is a key component, the backdrop of a, I'll, let's date it to 1857, let's date it to Dred Scott, a backdrop of 175 years of what I think any reasonable person would call aggressive, strong judicial review. Dred Scott, Congress has the power under Article 4 to make rules for the territories. That's what it did. And the court said you can't, leading to a civil war. So it's my view, and I know I'm more radical than most on this, that the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court gutted the Reconstruction Amendments completely and turned them from the, the friend of black people to the friend of railroads and big companies. And the court did that by itself from 1880 or so until 1935, or really 1954, really 1964. So I don't think any other country has that history. They might have a 50-year history, a 30-year history, a 70-year history at most. They don't have 200-year history. And that strikes me as important. I agree with you. It's, it's fundamentally important. But I feel like you've rigged the rules of the debate because there's no other constitution that has lasted as long, right? I mean, let's think of the other constitutions that have been in force uh, for a long time. So the oldest is, of course, the U.S., yeah. right? Uh, written in 1787, enacted, uh, comes into force in 1789. That's a long time. What's the math there? 233 years uh, in force since 1789. The next one is 1814, Norway. Doesn't have a particularly strong uh, court because it's not a juristocracy right. like it is here in the United States. Right. Next up is the Netherlands, 1815. Same thing. Doesn't have a particularly strong court because it's not a juristocracy. They resolve their constitutional politics in the political arena, not in courts of law. My kind of country, go ahead. That, <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, they work very well over there, don't they? Norway and yeah. Netherlands, they regularly rank near the top of the UN's uh, um, Human Development Index right. for quality of life, Right. at the top of the Economist's uh, Democracy Index. So after the Netherlands in 1815, then we go to Belgium, 1831. As you're going through this list, though, I, 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 I negligently forgot to mention one other fact. Other than Iceland, we're the only Supreme Court in history with life tenure justices. And that makes a big mm -hmm. difference. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So you, you're, you're writing a brief now, Eric, as I read it, <laughs> as I hear you and read you uh, for why the U.S. Supreme Court is exceptional, uh, not just in the power it has, but in its structure, in its composition. Exceptionally in bad, the, yes. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I don't make value judgments, you know. I do, uh, but go ahead. I try, I try not to, but I, I know you do. Yeah. Uh, and that's why you're a great American. Well, thank you're you. You're a great American. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I love my country. You, 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 I, wait a minute. I love my country and I hate my court. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, for sure. But you're, you're a great American because um, you do exercise your First Amendment right <laughs> in a, such a robust way that is inspirational to me. I'm not American. I can't speak as freely. Right. in this country. Fair enough. <laughs> you probably could, but fair uh, enough. So, well, no, I, I certainly could because the Constitution protects that right, but I don't feel as liberated as an American might. 
uh, to really? speak as freely. Really? Now I want to talk to you yeah. about, you keep saying things that make me want to talk to you about other things. Now I want to talk to you about that, but we'll put that aside. Yeah. So, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so can we compare and contrast for one minute? I, I didn't tell you we we're going to do this, so I apologize. How, because Jamal Green's new book on this is so interesting and provocative. How we deal with abortion and how Germany has. Are you familiar? I, I, can we talk about this or is this beyond? I, I'm aware of how other countries have dealt with abortion. Yeah. Yes, yes absolutely. Um, Jamar's, Jamal's position, he was on my podcast too, is basically that Germany gave a little. Germany ends up with like a, a, a Casey type you know, resolution on this, where you give a little, you take a little, everybody gets a little bit of something. It's still a hard issue, but, 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 but people went away reasonably satisfied. Not, it doesn't affect election. I don't think abortion affects election in Germany. Like, has affected elections in Germany. Abortion has clearly affected elections. That's what I mean, Richard. That's the kind of example I mean that our that our court is is important in ways to the American populace. Do other countries' courts do things that dramatically affect who gets elected prime minister, for example? I'm pausing now because I'm trying to think uh, to respond to your question. And two countries come to mind. Yeah. One is Brazil. Sure. Brazil's court is ultra, ultra powerful. The justices on the court are superstars. Uh, they walk down the street. They're going to be mobbed by either fans or opponents. Right. And part of the reason why Brazilian Supreme Court justices have this widespread notoriety is because their deliberations right. are public, public on TV. I know. I love that. I, I, really do mean, I really do mean deliberations. I know. I, I don't mean just the oral arguments. I mean what happens behind closed doors in most other courts, how they debate and decide, well, what do you think? And who's going to write the opinion? I know. It's all out in the open. I like it. <laughs> Transparency is good. Yeah. Transparency is good. Yeah. By the way, speaking uh, of Brazil, so two Brazilian law professors and I had lunch a few months ago. They were completely confused by originalism. And they said our constitution that we currently have was ratified, I think, in 1988. And there are people alive yeah. today who were there at the time. And we think it's a yeah. joke. How can you possibly have originalism for a 1791 constitution? I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to get that in. Go ahead. Well, there, there are no open questions in that scenario because you just ask them what they intended. They're there. <laughs> right. And they, st <laughs> and they still don't use it. And they still think it's a joke. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, similar challenges uh, have arisen in Canada mm -hmm. where the modern constitutional rights protecting document uh, was enacted in 1982. Those people are still around. We can just ask them. Right. Uh, but originalism for matters of rights uh, has been discredited in Canada so far, so far. But in matters of constitutional structure, the court does rely on originalist constitutional interpretation, but it won't say that it does. Yeah. It won't say that it does, but it does. All right, so um, Richard, we have, we've been, we have to call this in a few minutes, though I could talk to you for a year. Um, I'm gonna put you on the spot. I apologize in advance. So if there were three things you wanted Americans to understand about the difference between our constitutional system in general and constitutional amendments specifically, maybe, and other, and how many other countries do it. What would the? Would, oh, that have to be three. But what what major points would you want people to say? Wait a minute. Like, I had never thought about this idea of having different processes for different constitutional provisions. Like that's that's fascinating to me. Are there other things like that that we should know before we have to call it a day? Unfortunately. 
I love this question. I love this question. And I'm just trying to think of three things. Let me say one thing about rights. Yeah. One thing about um, amendability. And then one thing about the status of the Constitution in the jurisdiction. Before I do that, just let me um, tell you about the other court I was thinking of that has some influence in a similar way in and around elections. And I think it's Israel, or at least it may be in the next election, given what's happening today, right now, as we speak in this very moment uh, in Israel. Okay, so three things that I think uh, your listeners and viewers should know about the U.S. Constitution in relation to the world. First, on rights. Most newer modern constitutions around the world, they protect rights that the U.S. Constitution doesn't protect at all, doesn't even recognize. These are social and economic rights, right to a job, right to health care, right to shelter, the right to clean environment. These social and economic rights are almost at the point where they're non-negotiables for a modern constitution, almost, not quite, but almost. Now, you don't see this in the U.S. Constitution, but you do see these rights in state constitutions. And so this sets the U.S. Constitution apart, not just from the constitutions of the world, but from constitutions in the states themselves. That's the first point. Second point, on amendability. The U.S. Constitution is unamendable today. And this is a problem. It's a problem because the Constitution is not operating the way a Constitution should. I understand a Constitution to be a kind of continuous definition and self-definition of the people, by the people, of themselves, and what they wish to see for themselves and their posterity. And when the Constitution becomes frozen as it is today, I'm very uncomfortable calling that document, that set of rules, a constitution because it's not operating the way it should. It creates a disjunction between what the people believe and want for today, for themselves, and what the document, the constitution, imposes upon them. It imposes a kind of a set of handcuffs, constitutional handcuffs, that ties them to a text that they no longer see themselves in. In the countries of the world, Constitutions are amended quite regularly, not all the time, but frequently, regularly, so that the people have the capacity to see themselves and their views and their values reflected in the text. That's the second point. The third and final point about the identity of the Constitution. There's a problem here in the United States that few other countries confront when it comes to their Constitution. And this is a problem that Madison saw as a virtue, by the way. And this is a problem of constitutional veneration, which my colleague Sandy Levinson talks about quite frequently. Constitutional veneration. Americans love their constitution with reason, right? With good reason. It's a beautiful uh, document. It protects many rights, but not the text. It's interpretation, right, by judges. Uh, Historically has, modern historically has protected uh, rights. But I think the love and obsession and veneration of the Constitution has impeded changes to it because there's a kind of a founder worship that makes people feel like if I change the Constitution, am I repudiating the founders? Then what does that say about what we've been doing for the past 235 years? 
other countries of the world, there is no similar level of veneration, no similar level of obsession with the Constitution. And that's why they can more frequently, more comfortably reform their Constitution so that it meets their current needs. Well, I lied. It wasn't my last question because you said something so interesting I have to follow up. <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, you know, what you just said I, is something that I've always had in the back of my brain but never came to the front of my brain, which is this. Another difference, I assume, but tell me if I'm wrong, between our Constitution and almost everybody else's, not England's, obviously, um, is that our Constitution, both in its original form and the Reconstruction Amendments, does not represent we the people and does not represent the people today. A constitution that was enacted in 1953 or 47 or wherever in Germany or France or Spain or Israel, wherever, will generally reflect the population as it exists even in 2023, but not in America because blacks and women and other people of color had absolutely no or almost no influence on either the original constitution or the Reconstruction Amendments. And the irony of Americans holding in veneration this document that does not represent we the people, strikes me, as originally written, strikes, strikes me as a big schizophrenic problem for America today. Do I have that right? I'm reminded of Thurgood Marshall's bicentennial speech in 1987 in which he's invited to reflect on the anniversary. And he says, I cannot take your invitation to celebrate this document yeah. because the document doesn't reflect me. It was exclusionary. It didn't include those who should have been included. It was a narrow group of persons who spoke for the country, whether or not the country wanted them to speak for them. And so instead, Thurgood Marshall says, I instead want to celebrate the amendments, the 14th Amendment in particular, because that reflects the more modern view of the Constitution. This is why, Eric, I'm a fan of Jefferson's proposal. Jefferson proposed that every generation ought to be able to write its own constitution. I'm not suggesting this for the United States. What I'm suggesting is a moderate view, uh, version of that argument, which is to do what the states do. Many states, 14 or 15 by my count, have a requirement that every 10, 15, or 20 years, it varies, the people have to be asked directly in a referendum do you want to change your constitution? If they say yes by majority, a convention is convened where the people, with delegates of course representing them, can decide what to do about the constitution. This is a way, I think, of ensuring that the constitution always retains the sociological legitimacy of the people of the present moment. Because when the people say, I don't want to change anything, that's a validation of the document today. And when they say, I want to change something, and they convene a convention, that's also a validation of the document today. So on this point, I'm a Jeffersonian. I'm with you, Richard, all the way. Thank you. So, I, I'm a Jeffersonian, too, in that sense. Um, thank you so much for being on. I've learned so much today. It makes me want to have you back for the next hour and a half because I could talk to you about this forever. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for including me. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.